Well, if you're a scrupulous note-taker, you need to know that things have changed since I submitted my notes to Emily on Thursday. I just need time to reflect on the Word, and as I do, things change a bit. The title now is Imitators of God. I think that captures better Paul's basic concern here in this passage, and the Three points are walk in love, walk in purity, walk in hope. Walk in love, walk in purity, walk in hope. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty Father, I pray that you would bless this time as we consider these words of Paul's. This is an unseemly subject. It's not something we enjoy talking about. But Father, these words are just as relevant to us today as they were in Paul's day. Father, speak to us about eternal things here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I was raised in Alabama, but I attended the University of Wyoming in Laramie in those days before cell phones and texting and emails. That was a long way from home. But occasionally, my father's work would actually take him to Wyoming. It was wonderful. Those were wonderful times when my father would visit. We would have Mexican food at El Vaquero. We would hunt up some interesting place in Wyoming to visit over a weekend. One visit, I introduced my dad to a friend. He and I were fellow geology majors. And before I could say, To my friend David, uh, this is my father, John Massey. He began laughing. I was a little bit put off by that. But then he quickly explained, Billy, you don't have to tell me this is your father. You look like him. You talk like him. You walk like him. You stand like him. And what my friend said pleased me. I love my dad. I respected him. I was grateful to bear his likeness. Children are natural 
mirrors of their parents, aren't they? Sometimes to the parents' embarrassment. But they are natural mirrors of their parents, and Paul elevates that familiar experience to the highest possible level here. He says that because God is our Heavenly Father, our lives must reflect His. Now, Paul is presuming our familiarity with all that he has said beforehand. It's been a while since we've been in this letter together. So just the pertinent points once again. Each Christian, Paul has said, is a new person. Each Christian is a new person. The Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead has raised the believer to new life with his risen Savior. And this new person, Paul says is created in the likeness of God. Now that's a tremendous privilege. I mean, that's enough of a privilege to raise those of us who have a lowest self-esteem to high esteem. We have been saved to be the very image and likeness of God. I mean, as the branch grafted into the trunk bears fruit because the life of that trunk is in that branch, so we, by faith, have been grafted into Christ so that we bear the likeness of God because the life and the Spirit of Christ are within us. I mean, child of God... You should count it your highest privilege to increasingly bear the likeness of God in this world. And one day, the scriptures promise us, you shall bear the likeness of your Savior's glorified humanity. That is the goal of your salvation. We are being transformed into Christ's image, Paul says to the Corinthians, one degree of glory to another, And so with this hope in our hearts, we must walk accordingly. Daily we must put to death those words, those actions that belong to our former life. And daily we must put into practice in our thinking and in our words and our actions who we now are as the children of God. But as we see, this involves us in sharp spiritual conflict. Although we are no longer that old person we were before we believed, the deceitful desires of that old person are still very much alive in us, aren't they? The powers of the old person are dethroned. They no longer rule over us as Lord as they did formerly, but they're not yet destroyed. And so at times... We may feel corruptions rising up within us like the thermometer on a hot summer day. The lust, the envy, the impatience, the anger, the resentment, the covetousness, the self-pity, and all the rest. We feel at times that our grace is burned down to a spark. But even so, with all of these contrary urges, we are the children of God whom he is renewing into his likeness. And so though we may feel this morning as much as if we are in the valley as on the mountaintop, it's not time to sit down and surrender. Instead, knowing that we are the children of God in whom the Spirit of our Father dwells and knowing that we are destined to glory... We must push out against our doubts and our weaknesses 
and our discouragements by faith. We must be imitators of God, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And one thing we must do is walk in love. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, Paul says. Don't we hear in those words how the great hallmark of the Christian life is love? Love to God. Love for others. Our first priority in this matter of imitating God is to walk in love. But you see, Paul's very much a realist. Paul knows our weaknesses. He knows that we don't often feel this love of God burning brightly in our hearts. So as a way of stirring up our gratitude and hope, he reminds us of our exalted privilege. We are God's beloved children. We are beloved by God. Child of God, you are loved. You are loved. Now I know some of you are probably saying, I know all of that. Let's move on. Give me something that I can use. But this is Paul's starting place for us. This is what, it's this deep-seated sense of God's love for us that frees us to respond to God in kind and frees us to love others. I mean, think of what a privilege this is. You see, in Paul's day, adoption was ordinarily of young adult males, not children as we do here, but ordinarily of young adult males to become heirs of the childless rich. But do you see how Paul takes that and turns it upside down on its head? The gospel turns it upside down on its head by proclaiming that God graciously adopts people of bad character, of bad character as his children who receive his son as Savior. And God cherishes us. He cherishes you. He delights in you. Yes, with all of these contrary things going on in you, he delights in you. The Lord takes pleasure in his people, the psalmist said. I mean, consider how there is nothing, there is nothing concerning your welfare that your father does not consider important. The hairs of your head are numbered. God's love so embraces all the affairs of your life that you may resort to him for his help at all times and in all things. In all of your hurts, God himself hurts. Because you see, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to you. I mean, the riches of his goodness toward you are unsearchable, the psalmist says. If you could count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. Child of God, you are loved. And child of God, you must love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. As Christ gave himself up for us as a sacrifice, so you must love. That's sacrificial love. That's love of a tall order. But that's the standard. And that is the love the Spirit of God is committed to reproducing in you as God's beloved child. In love, Christ prayed for those who scourged him and mocked him and hated him and crucified him. He prayed, Father, forgive them. And so, knowing that your sins put Christ on the cross, will you now withhold from others your love and forgiveness, even when they hurt you? You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, Jesus taught. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be 
sons of your Father who is in heaven. And that is hard. That's hard, isn't it? That's a supernatural love. That's a love that has to come to us from God as we seek to love by faith, knowing that the Spirit is at work in us both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And as in the case of Jesus, there's no guarantee people will respond to our love by loving us back. It's not a matter of quid pro quo. I love you and you love me back. But regardless of the outcome, we must love others with the love which we ourselves have received from God. A well-known pastor wrote about a friend who returned stateside from the mission field, and she settled into a townhouse. The townhouse was far nicer than anything she had ever lived in in the mission field. Uh, she had a creative ability, and she wonderfully decorated the place. She made it a home, not just a house. But then a family with boys moved in next door. They turned the front yard into a desert. They broke windows in her home. They used foul language continually. They urinated on her lawn. The last straw came when one of the boys threw a can of orange paint over the patio walls. And this poor woman did not like her neighbors. And she was not happy that God had put her there. And so she got on her knees and she prayed, Lord, you know I do not like these people at all. So God, help me to love them. And she didn't feel a love, a new love burning brightly in her heart for her neighbors, but she resolved to walk in love, looking to God for help. She baked a pie for the neighbors. She tried to cultivate a caring relationship with them. You know what happened? They didn't change at all. They didn't change, but she did. And she actually began to love them. And when those neighbors moved away, she actually wept. We must walk in love. And we must walk in purity. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now I realize, I realize this is an unseemly subject and appropriately we are sensitive to what our children hear in church. One thing we need to bear in mind is this. In chapter 6, Paul is going to directly address children. And that means that the words that he writes here were intended to be read by children as well as adults as they gathered in the assembly. You know, Paul's speaking here to believers who had come to faith living in the notoriously sinful port city of Ephesus in the first century. Uh, the dominant religion in Ephesus was the worship of the multi-breasted goddess Diana. And here's the thing. Ritual prostitution at the temple was a daily recreation. Lives shattered by sexual brokenness and all its problems were commonplace. 
And in our day of so-called gentlemen's clubs and adult bookstores and streaming movies on cell phones and pornographic websites, Paul's counsel is just as necessary today as it was then, isn't it? I mean, so how do we walk in purity? I think there are a lot of things we could say about that, but here are a couple. First, treasure your identity. Be imitators of God as beloved children. It's important to listen closely to what Paul says here. We must imitate our Heavenly Father not to be His beloved children, but precisely because we are His beloved children by simple faith in Jesus in spite of all these contrary urges in us. And so once again, as Paul has done throughout this letter, he's reminding us that the Christian's holiness is a matter now of learning to be in action what he already is in his mind and his heart as a new person. And so when sexual temptations intrude upon us, as a first resort, treasure your identity as the child of God. I mean, think about it like this. How might you warn a fellow believer not to indulge in sin-destroying lust? Well, you could command him not to. You could say, don't do that. You could also uh, condemn its practices. You could warn him, and both are necessary, and Paul's going to do that here. But have you also noticed that he reminds the tempted believer as a first priority of his exalted identity as being a child of God? That's the starting point. You see, to neglect this familial relationship with God as Father deprives the believer of his assurance. And it deprives the believer of God's appointed destiny for him. And without that foundation which the gospel provides to those who believe, your exhortations may only contribute to this downward path of growing guilt and shame and hopelessness. This runs contrary to the way that we think. You see, the power of the purity begins with treasuring your new identity. We don't hear, I mean, don't we hear in Paul's words more than finger waving and saying, don't do those naughty things. I mean, tempted as the believer is, struggling as he may be at times, the child of God, Paul says here, is a saint. Do you see that? I mean, Paul explained the significance of this back in chapters 1 and 2. Solely because of his undeserved grace, God made the believer spiritually alive with Christ when he was dead. He joined him to Christ by working faith in him as a gift. He raised him up to new life with Christ. The indwelling Spirit of God assures him that he's God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. God is working him him now both to will and to do his good pleasure. And it's, you see, it's only because of these spiritual realities that the believer's heart can even resonate with Paul's view of sexual purity here. He's able to treasure it by the Spirit's illumination. He's able to see that he can never find life and fulfillment and happiness in the world's distorted views of sex. God's promises to his children are pleasure, pleasure of communing with him that is vastly superior, vastly superior to the fleeting pleasures of indulging in sexual impurity. I mean, child of God, don't settle for less sexual impurity when you can have the best communion with God. That's your privilege. 
Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The psalmist promises. Years ago, a Christian magazine ran an unsigned article by a pastor who confessed to years of bondage to pornography. And he testified to what it was that won his liberty. He ran across a book, in this case by a French Catholic believer who admitted that the plague of guilt and remorse had not liberated him from his lust. The author concluded that there is only one powerful reason to repent of sexual sin and live in sexual purity. The reason concerns the surpassing privileges God gives to his children who live for him and love him. Jesus crisply summarized those privileges this way. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that surpassing privilege of communing with God is able to empower our freedom from living in lust. The pastor wrote these words. He said, the thought hit me like a bell rung in a dark, silent hall. So far, none of the really scary negative arguments against lust succeeded in keeping me from it. But here was a description of what I was missing by continuing to harbor lust. I was limiting my own intimacy with God. He writes, could he in fact substitute another thirst and another hunger for the one I had never filled? Would living water somehow quench lust? That was the gamble of faith. But of course it wasn't a gamble at all. I mean, you can't lose when you lay all your chips and all your hope on God's promises of superior pleasure in Him. And then treasure your destiny. Paul referred to that back in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Child of God, God has chosen and predestined you to bear the likeness of your Savior in holiness. He's working in you toward that end, one degree of glory to another. Just accept that he set his love on you, undeserving as you are. And one way or another, he's going to complete your salvation. He's going to have his way. You know, part of our privilege of the as being the children of God, is being under our Father's care and discipline. God disciplines us for our own good. And what does our Heavenly Father do with a child who simply presumes on His grace and thinks little of His heavenly inheritance, which is to put on glory? He disciplines him. He deprives him of the joy of his salvation. He permits him to walk in the darkness for a season. He humbles him by revealing to him the the hidden powers of deceit and corruption in his heart. And he brings him to the point of the prodigal who says, it's better to return home to the Father. Our Westminster Confession of Faith is just full of godly counsel. In the 11th chapter we read, God continues to forgive the sins of those who are justified, although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure. 
and not have the light of his countenance restored to them until they humble themselves, confess their sin, plead for pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. My friends, we must walk in purity. And finally, we must walk in hope. Two stark warnings in these verses drive the believer to treasure and cleave to his hope and security in God's preserving grace that will not let him go. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, covetousness, that is an idolatry, who has no, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now, but now you are light in the Lord. I think Paul's warning here is similar to one that Dr. John Piper issued to a professing Christian years ago. A man was living in open adultery. And bless his heart, Piper met with this man and he listened patiently uh, to this man and he sympathized with the man's difficulties in his marriage. And he, he pled with the man to return to his wife. On and on it went. But all of Piper's counsel fell on deaf ears. So finally, as a last resort, Piper read Jesus' warning to him. Piper read, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away from you. It is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Piper says, I told him, you know, Jesus says that if you don't fight this sin with the kind of seriousness that is willing to gouge out your own eye, you will go to hell and you will suffer there forever. I think Paul's warnings are intended to have the same kind of effect. It's not a matter of one losing his salvation. That's not possible. Instead, it's a matter of asking oneself, am I really saved despite my profession when I freely choose to live in overt sin? My friends, the flesh within is weak. It is weak. I mean, if we are honest with ourselves, we know how weak and prone we are to stumble. It's as we sing in the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. There is a strong temptation even within the child of God to love the sin more than the Savior. But my friends, the spirit within is strong. Where am I, where am I, where am I the hope of my final perseverance be found? It's not in myself. It's only in the love of God for his elect children that he will not let them go and he will preserve them by his almighty spirit in a state of grace. Paul concludes this section saying, do not be partakers with them for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so my struggling friend, I ask, have you fled to the blood of Jesus for deliverance? Have you? 
I mean, if not, trust in the blood of Christ which he shed to make you clean. I care not how great your lusts are. I care not how great your impurities are. God promises every sinner who repents and believes deliverance and a new chapter of life. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. But my friend, if you have fled to the blood of Jesus to make you clean in times of temptation, then treasure and savor that you are secure in God's grace. It's your anchor. Child of God, God chose you and predestined you to glory. Underneath you are his everlasting arms. God's children may backslide. They may fall into gross sin. And when they do so, they act out of character. They violate their own new nature and they make themselves deeply, deeply miserable. The backslidden child of God is the most miserable of people. In the assurance that God will never forsake his own, let us renew our repentance at such times. Let us confess our sins and let us walk in the joy of our salvation. Let us pray. Almighty Father, In times of temptation and struggle, we are grateful for the assurances your gospel gives us. That we are your children. That we are the saints of God. Despite all these contrary urges we feel within us. Father, help us to walk. Not by sight, not by feeling, but by faith. Help us to walk by faith knowing that you have chosen us to be holy and blameless and that you will complete the work you have begun in all who believe in Jesus. Father, as we walk with you in purity, as we walk with you in hope, help us also to walk in love, representing the love that you have shown us to in our Savior. We ask these things in his name. Amen.